You are listening to The Lifehack Show, a featured podcast of lifehack.org, where we teach you how to live your best life without sacrifice. I'm Allie Kramer, and today I'll be talking with Darren Gold. Darren's a managing partner at the Trium Group, where he is one of the world's leading executive coaches and advisors to many top CEOs and leadership teams. In his book, Master Your Code, The Art, Wisdom, and Science of Leading an Extraordinary Life, Darren teaches people how to shape their lives and not be a prisoner of circumstances, live a life of integrity, let go of grudges and forgive unconditionally, and pursue a life of meaning. Thank you, Allie. It's really great to be on your show. Yeah, this is going to be a cool one. Um, in your book, Master Your Code, uh, you, you talk about these principles for making changes in, in thinking and behavior. Um, and what I love most is that you support these principles with uh, a nice mix of science and real-world examples and personal anecdotes. Uh, this is a pretty, I mean, it's kind of all-encompassing, you know, how, how this yeah. book covers these things. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd love to dive more into this. Um, and I'd like to start with the question, what does mastering your code mean? Well, I think there's several things that are represented in the title. There's a notion of mastery, uh, which I, I explore in the book. The, this idea that to, I start with a quote: "No one is free. No one is free who is not master of his own mind, mm-hmm. um, or no, is, isn't a master of himself." That's Epictetus, a Stoic philosopher. So there's this idea of self mastery that's woven throughout the book, um, and then this idea of code, which I uh, introduce at the very outset of the book, and I start with. A few definitions. The first one is a definition which I introduced, which is a program. So I use the computer program as a metaphor that runs throughout the book. And mm-hmm. my assertion is that every one of us, myself included for some time, uh, is run by a computer program of sorts. And mm-hmm. I define that as a set of unconscious, safety-based beliefs, values, and rules that automatically drive your behavior and limit your results. Um, and then I contrast this with uh, this notion of a code, which is a conscious set of beliefs, values, and rules that's intentionally and purposefully designed to really serve you and produce extraordinary results. And at least in my own experience, um, my life changed dramatically when I first realized that I'd been you know, sort of running my life on autopilot. Mm-hmm. I say in the book somewhere, I was almost 40 years old when I realized I was running a life you know, based on a program written by a seven-year-old boy, and that I had the choice to rewrite it. And that's sort of at the sort of essence of the book. Yeah, that's very powerful. Um, and I, I love how you touch on the accumulation of these beliefs, values, rules um, that guide us. And a lot of people don't really question that, you know, it's not too often that you'll, you'll do a lot of self-reflecting and say, wait a minute, are all these um thoughts and, and presumptions in my mind, are they necessary? You know, and I, I think that that's, that's really cool that you're kind of questioning this and that's the basis of the book. Yeah. And I'd say even more than just question it, most of us don't even see them to begin with. That's a great point. I share this story, you know, the late author, David Foster Wallace in his commencement address to Kenyon college shared this, the very short story of the two fish swimming along and an older fish swims by and the older fish says, hey, boys, how's the water? And the younger fish, after he passes by, says, What's the hell, what the hell is water? And so <laughs> I think it's just a great metaphor, right? right? Because we don't even see these uh, yeah. beliefs and values and rules. And so you can't change what you can't see. So a big part of the book is just the awareness that we all um, are, uh, have this you know, set of beliefs, values, and rules that are subconscious, meaning that we're not conscious of them. Um, and that, that, that alone, just seeing them perhaps for the first time can be really transformational. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, I like how you touch on the point that they, they really guide how we behave. Um, but one of your main points is that they limit our results of what we can achieve, our potential. Yeah, I think they both serve us and limit us. And I think that's the real um, um, important um, recognition. And maybe one example that I share in the book, uh, there's a category of rules that I call survival strategies. And survival strategy, the way I define it is, you know, somewhere in your childhood, every one of us uh, experiences some traumatic event. It could be a serious trauma, unfortunately, or it could be just something what I would call like lowercase t trauma, which is, you know, you were teased or you were bullied or you felt excluded. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, as children, our primary instinct is to stay safe, psychologically safe, to feel included and loved and to feel like you belong. Mm -hmm. Um, and in that moment of trauma, uh, I share when that happened to me, I remember it distinctly. I was eight years old. I had moved from London, England to Southern California. And oh, I can wow. Tell you big change. A, that's a big change. <laughs> yeah. You know, having an English accent at age 18 is pretty cool. At age eight, not cool at all. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I was, I was teased mercilessly. And so um, in that moment, I didn't know it, right? Again, subconsciously, I constructed a belief or a rule that I had to be liked no matter what. And I got really good at it. Now, I didn't know that I had this rule. It just was the way I thought I was and the way the world worked. Um, I got so good at it that it really served me. I was very popular in, in school and I had early professional success and it really serves me and continues to serve me. Mm -hmm. But as you said, it, I also saw, uh, and this was a real breakthrough for me, really where it was limiting my effectiveness. I had real difficulty having direct, honest, constructive conversations with people. When I was in leadership positions, I was robbing people of really essential and important feedback. And then kind of ironically, because I was so likable, people found it hard to give me tough feedback, robbing myself of, of growth and development. And so these, this is just one of many examples of the kinds of beliefs and rules that we construct, we make up, right? Um, and that we don't even see we have them and that certainly serve us, but very much get in the way of our effectiveness, particularly as we get into adulthood and start leading more complex lives. Mm -hmm. and, and your example there is probably something that a lot of people can relate to. You know, as an eight-year-old child, it's very difficult to fit in no matter who you are. But yet someone that, you know, has a very um, audible, <laughs> noticeable difference from their peers, such as you're saying, your English accent. I'm guessing that you made it a point, at, like you said, to be liked, but then also to kind of conform to what those others would find likable. And Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I lost that, that accent very quickly. Yeah. Do you miss it? <laughs> no. <laughs> I can bring it back. So I, you know, it was, it was a cool bar trick when I got to college. I'm sure it was. But it, it does speak to how, you know, your mind is is very vulnerable, but also very powerful at a young age like that. It can really set the, the track for where you go for the rest of your life. And as you're saying, it kind of inhibited you once you got older um, and started to interact on a professional level. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, if you look at the word personality, it comes from the Greek word persona, which means mask. Mm -hmm. And really when people say that's the way I am, I love this distinction that I learned a while ago, which is no, it's the way you've wound up being. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So, and, and to this, that I think in that distinction lies this real power that we have to, um, 
reconstruct how we see ourselves, how we see others, and how we see the world. And it doesn't mean, I think this is a really important nuance for your listeners, it doesn't mean to diminish or demonize or dismiss whatever it was that served you, mm -hmm. um, but to expand it. And mm -hmm. with, more, you know, with an expanded set of beliefs, values, and rules, you have way more degrees of freedom and more, more range of action, and therefore higher probability you want to, you're going to get the results you want in your life. Sure. So I still have the ability to be likable. I'm not going to get rid of that. Who would? Right. <laughs> but I've got a lot more range in terms of putting that at risk when I need to, when it really serves me and others. And, and that, that's led to you know, much more fulfilling and joyful life uh, when I've been able to know that and, and practice it. Sure. So how does this tie into the idea of authenticity? That's a really great question. And it's a very loaded term. And mm -hmm. oftentimes, I think it kind of goes back to this distinction of who I am versus who I've wound up being. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, people mistake this who I am with their authentic self. Mm -hmm. And therefore, when they're, they see an opportunity to evolve or grow or be different or expand, it strikes this uh, sort of allergic reaction because that's not who I am, right? It doesn't feel right. Right. Um, and when I've discovered that distinction of like, wait a second, it's actually not who I am. It's who I've wound up being based on some powerful influences in my life, my family of origin, my, uh, my childhood experiences, uh, our culture, all of this conditioning. And that it was this young child that made up all these rules about who I think I am as a 30, 40, 50 year old person in the world. It's some, it starts to get a little bit less important than this mm -hmm. whole idea of authenticity. And I uh, can begin to relax uh, that there isn't some version of who I am that I have to um, be authentic about that actually, um, and somebody said this a, a while ago, you know, uh, you know, being authentic is the primary source of inauthenticity. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's really a letting go of the masks that you've placed on sort of who you really are at your core. Um, if you want to really talk about authenticity, that's sort of where I go. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you, in your book, you talk about um, 10 specific principles. And surely I want the listening audience to purchase your book, so please don't give them all away. But <laughs> can you kind of tap into um, maybe a few that will give the, the listening audience a general idea of, of how your... Um, kind of strategy with, with retaking and reclaiming your life works. Yeah. I assert at the beginning of the book that, and it's of course, you know, my, my whole goal in writing this book was to distill you know, thousands of years of wisdom and hundreds of years of modern science. And then my own personal experience into something that was practical and digestible without suggesting that any of this is that simple or easy. <laughs> well, that's, um, that's not a big ask at all. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it, it did lead me to, okay, like, are there some fundamental lines of code? Uh -huh. that if you master these can really be the source of an extraordinary life. And I landed on these 10. So one example would be this notion in the fourth, my fourth chapter. And each of my chapters is a declaration. And the, the declaration is I'm 100% responsible for my life. Mm -hmm. And what um, this line of code points to is a default line of your program, which is um, what psychologists would call an external locus of control, what I call in the book a, a victim mindset, mm -hmm. uh, which is you know, very dominant in our culture. Absolutely. Um, and it's this idea that the world happens to me, circumstances happen to me, there's very little I can do to affect my circumstances, and out of that I tend to externalize and blame. Mm -hmm. 
And if you've ever you know, waited in line for a cup of coffee in Starbucks and it's taking too long, you'll have had that conversation with somebody about <laughs> how they're growing beans back there or something, right? It's <laughs> sort of part of our culture. We also build a community um, mm-hmm. by commiserating with others in that place. It's not a very empowering place to be. Sure, sure. Um, and I assert that one of the most powerful shifts, and there's 50 years of research um, around what's called an internal locus of control and how an internal locus of control correlates to dramatically improved outcomes in every dimension of your life, mm-hmm. career, finances, education, health, you name it, that says um, there's always something I can do to affect my situation. I shape my circumstances, not the other way around. And I go so far as to say I'm 100% responsible for the outcome and my life, not because that's necessarily true, and here again is another important nuance because, of course, there are always going to be times when things are outside of your control. Sure. As a stand to take. And I say it doesn't matter whether the belief is true or not. It's really does the belief better serve you? And that's a very different question to ask. So mm-hmm. that would be an example of if you want to lead an extraordinary life, however you define that, um, declaring that I'm going to take responsibility for my life and I'm going to give up the right to blame, even though I might be justified in doing so is an incredibly important shift, maybe the most important. That, that makes a lot of sense. And I can definitely um, get on board with that. One of my favorite, I'm not sure exactly how the quote goes, but it's, it's something to the effect of you can't control others' actions or the, the actions that happen around you, but you certainly can control your reactions to those actions. And that's exactly right. Yep. It's so empowering because it really, it really knocks you on your, on your butt and says, Oh, okay. Yeah. This is kind of up to me. And I'm not a victim. Like you're saying that victim mentality is highly prevalent because I, I'm not really sure why I'm certainly not a psychologist, but it seems to be um, like you're saying uh, it builds that community of commiseration and stuff. But think about, in the the community can be built off of self empowerment. It's it's pretty amazing. Yeah, you know, it's a it, it provides an enormous short term payoff. Mm-hmm. You know, when I get to you know avoid responsibility and blame others, and so it's a very seductive, and understandably seductive place to go to, um, and we re- re- reward it in our culture. I, I often tell the story of my, you know, my youngest who was, um, you know, had this obsession with bees and. Mm-hmm. Uh, was convinced that he could step on a bee and not get stung. And of course I told him that wasn't true and that he should not do that. And of course he did it and came running to me. What do you think I did? Did I lecture him and say, look, we had a conversation and you need to take responsibility. No, I hugged him and kissed him. And right. So we're rewarded very early um, on for, um, for going to that place. And uh, right. <laughs> it feels really good. Yeah. <laughs> so, a hard, and it's a hard one to break. It's one that I have to constantly remind myself. And I often tell the cue for this is when you blame or you're judging. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was literally having lunch today uh, with a, uh, a, a good friend and he's the CEO of a company who was complaining that his, um, they have a, they sort of a really big event at their company um, and the, the people weren't more appreciative. Uh-huh. And I was like, okay, there's the cue, right? Yeah. And I said, well, where are you more appreciative of yourself? Mm-hmm. Like, wow, I never thought that, right? So we, we spend a lot of our time and energy um, complaining, judging, and blaming others and very little energy looking inward to see the very thing that I'm complaining about, I'm probably doing myself. If you want to lead 
yourself and others, that's the place to go. And so yeah. it's a doorway into self-mastery, this, this notion of responsible mindset. Sure. And what a, what a great gift that you gave him today. Thinking about, I'm sure he could have wasted hours being upset over <laughs> the lack Don't of appreciation. Don't we as friends want to sit there and, you know, mm-hmm. like join in, right? Because <laughs> yeah. you can understand it. But, but, you know, I find that, you know, good friendship is both hearing that and really empathizing and then, you know, um, being a good sounding board. I know I appreciate that when my friends do it for me. Sure. And and challenging your friends to be the best versions of themselves, which is not always comfortable. No, that's right. Not always easy. No, not at all. So you mentioned, um, or you talk about polarity thinking. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm really eager to hear more about your thoughts on this. Um, Just starting off, if no one's ever heard of this uh, concept, what does this mean? Polarity thinking. In its simplest terms, it means that, again, our default way of seeing the world is in uh, black and white an either or. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see this, a great example I like to give is, um, for those of you out there that have had the blessing, uh, and frustration of being a parent <laughs> and, and you've co-parented, I don't want uh-huh. to assume that, um, you know, what, what you'll often hear is you've got one parent, one spouse or partner, um, that's very permissive, you know, has a philosophy of like, they've got to, you know, fall down and get up on their own. That's the only way they're going to learn. Right. Uh-huh. And then you'll have, which of course is true. And then you've got this other, you know, spouse that says, like, we need to be firm and draw boundaries. And, you know, they'll run roughshod over the place if we don't do that, which, of course, is true. And yet we often see, at times see that and speak about it in an either, with either or language. Uh-huh. We get caught in a battle and you can see this writ large in our society right now. And the reality is most complex phenomena, whether it's parenting or leading or any kind of relationship or professional endeavor, is more likely to be what I call a polarity, which is not a right or wrong answer, but two right answers that are independent of each other. So wouldn't it be wonderful if as parents, we could get the benefits of being permissive and the benefits of setting boundaries without the baggage and the downside of either. It sure would. And (laughs) fail to ever engage in that kind of conversation, and yet it's possible. So what I write about in the book is that most of the times where we're frustrated and challenged and want to do extraordinary things, we mistakenly see these false dichotomies and fail to appreciate the wisdom in the paradox and the opportunity to integrate opposite poles. And, um, and we can get into some practical examples. Parenting is a really great one. Um, it's a way of thinking differently mm-hmm. uh, about yourself and others in the world that is a, is a total game changer. I do a lot of that work with, uh, with organizations. Yeah. So what, what led you to discover, I know you, you talked a little bit about it, but I guess the question maybe is um, better phrased as how has this mindset shift alone impacted you? I, uh, you know, I, I'm often fond of saying like we all have a human superpower and that's the ability to choose the meaning we give to our circumstances. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think it's such a powerful a power that we many of us don't even realize we have, let alone exercise it consistently. And uh, I, I, you know, that very notion that I can see a situation, and I could either see it as really negatively, or I could see it and as very positive and with with possibility, regardless of the situation, mm-hmm. has been a life changer for me in mm-hmm. every aspect of my life. I mean, this you don't have to look that far in history to see. The most extraordinary people have been able have have known they've had that superpower and have practiced it. Um, yeah. 
you know, the one very powerful example for me is Viktor Frankl, who wrote a book, Man's Search for Meaning. Yes. He, you know, prisoner in an Auschwitz death camp who discovered that even in the most unimaginable of circumstances, it's hard to imagine, you know, worse circumstances for a human being. He had the ability, the one freedom that they, those guards couldn't take away from him was the freedom to choose his attitude regardless of circumstances. And he chose to flourish. Mm-hmm. So this idea of like, no matter how bad it is, we have a choice. That choice is always ours. It may be really hard to exercise it, but it's there for us to, ch- to take and to exercise. Uh, and that's the one thing no one can ever take away from you. The world shows up very differently every morning um, when you really practice and internalize that. So for me, that's been, I think, the biggest impact. Yeah. Again, very empowering. Um, so with all this said, do you have any recommendations for our listeners um, on maybe a daily practice that they can implement to start, I guess, empowering themselves? Yeah, I think, um, well, I love the fact that you're asking that question because daily practices or daily rituals to me are maybe the most important thing that you can do. Mm-hmm. I love telling the, the, the very quick story of Jerry Seinfeld at the beginning of his career as a comedian. He um, committed to writing a new joke. Didn't matter whether it was a good joke or a bad joke. Every single day, and he put X's on his calendar, and he draw a line. That's awesome. Yeah, and it created this chain of of of, of you know X's. And he said, "Look, I'm never going to break the chain." And yeah. to this day, he hasn't. So what I often say is, a person who has a daily ritual and is so committed to doing it that he or she declares, "I will never miss a single day," no matter what that ritual is. That is evidence in and of itself of an extraordinary person. Love how that. How do people do that? Right, right. right. If, you, if there's one thing I would leave your listeners with is adopt a daily practice and have such a commitment to it that you never break the chain. And it doesn't mean you need to add time to your already busy schedule. What I suggest that people do, and I do myself, is I wake up 10 minutes earlier than I otherwise would. I got to get up at 6 a.m., I'm getting up at 5.50. I get up mm-hmm. at 6.30, I'm getting up at 6.20. Those are my 10 minutes. I don't negotiate ever with myself and I don't let anything get in the way of that. And then what you put in the 10 minutes, you know, can, it's, it's whatever you want. It's almost less important for me. Mm-hmm. I do a quick gratitude practice. I do a loving kindness meditation. Mm-hmm. I go over my values. I say my identity statement, which is something we haven't talked about. Um, and then I make sure um, whether it's in that 10 minutes or not, that I'm really clear about the three outcomes I want uh, in my day. And so that is, you know, an incredible way to start your day. The one other thing I would say, which is super easy, there is the most important moment of your day is the, the second that you regain consciousness from, from sleep. Mm-hmm. And we miss that as an opportunity. And I have a practice of saying, you know, thank God I'm alive. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. uh, this is going to be an amazing day. And I put a big smile on my face and open up my body so it feels embodied. And that takes three seconds. Yeah. Um, so those are the sorts of, of, of things I think I, I always usually recommend. It's great. That's great, Darren, um, because you have just said the, the, the way that you've described your first 10 minutes of your day, it, it's like that's so much productivity just right there in those, those 10 little minutes. Yeah, just, you want to talk about life hacks, right? right. I mean, that is, that's, that's one for me that's just had an extraordinary impact. Right. That's really amazing. So t- let's talk about the, um, the idea. What did you call it? The, the personal identity statement? Yeah, identity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, this would be another one of those lines of code. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, this is the chapter seven. And it's, just, it's such an important one for me and for the leaders that I work with. Um, and this is this notion that we all have an identity. 
Um, and I define identity as, as a set of beliefs about ourselves and our own capabilities and our own capacity. And much of those beliefs, just like every belief, I like to say there's three things about belief. Number one, they're all made up. Mm-hmm. Number two, most if not all of the beliefs you hold, including those about yourself, are designed primarily to keep you safe, um, not necessarily for you to thrive. And number three, sure. if we've made them up, we can reconstruct them. So I call uh-huh. it identity reconstruction. And then this is really important. The most powerful driver of human behavior is the desire to be consistent with your identity. Hmm. It's almost impossible to take actions that are inconsistent with the identity you have. And most of us don't even know what that identity is. So that's powerful. Yeah. Right. And like, so if you want an extraordinary life, you've got to have an extraordinary identity. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you one example. I was thinking about writing this book. Mm-hmm. And believe it or not, I had an identity subconsciously that I wasn't an author. Now, mm-hmm. somebody who has an identity that's I'm not an author is going to talk a lot about writing a book, but it's not going to get around to writing mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. So I had to really reconstruct that part of my identity um, and say, I'm absolutely an author. I was holding all sorts of limiting beliefs around that identity. I don't know enough. There isn't anything original I have to write. No one's going to really care. Like, I need five to 10 more years. You name it. <laughs> Right. Uh, and I'm sure your listeners can, can relate. We all have these. Uh, but it wasn't until I included that very powerfully in my identity. And so my practice, uh, and when I work with senior business leaders, is that they have a very powerful identity that's linked to what they really want to achieve in life and that they believe it with absolute certainty. And they, they get to that belief by saying it with a lot of emotional and physical intensity multiple times a day. I say my identity at least three or four times a day, if not more. Um, it's the first thing I do when I wake up and I do it throughout the day. I do it a lot in the car. And it's my way of like priming my subconscious mind so that the actions I take will be naturally a natural manifestation of the beliefs I hold about myself. Wow. That's really cool. So we've covered a lot. Um, before we go, though, please let our listeners know where they can pick up a copy of your book um, and or where to get more information on it. Yeah, so um, it's available on Amazon and, you know, hardcover, paperback, Kindle, and, and uh, I narrate the audio book. like the sound of my voice. I'm not sure you do. So, yes, yeah, so it's available in all those formats. And then I have a, a website, uh, Darren J. Gold, D-A-R-R-E-N-J-G-O-L-D.com. And I have a a mailing list uh, on that if you're interested in getting more uh, information and more resources. Super cool. Thank you so much again for being our guest today, Darren. All of this was a very inspiring discussion. I'm still, I think my mind is still wrapping around um, just your first 10 minutes of the day. And I'm definitely going to start incorporating something like that. And again, the self-identity statement. I think that's something that I, I certainly have never even considered before, but I can imagine that it would be quite powerful. Yeah, well, thank you. It's been a real pleasure to to be on the show with you, Allie. I appreciate you having me. Absolutely. So to all of our listeners, be sure to pick up a copy of Darren's book, Master Your Code, The Art, Wisdom, and Science of Leading an Extraordinary Life. And also visit his website, Darren J. Gold. That's D-A-R-R-E-N-J-G-O-L-D.com. That wraps up today's show. Stay tuned for the next episode.
Are you plagued by the problem of procrastination? If so, you're not alone. Procrastination affects people from all walks of life, and we have the solution. Check out our free fast track class, No More Procrastination, and discover the triggers that power your own behavior and learn how to defeat this problem head on. Register at www.lifehack.org backslash focus dash fast dash track.